Good afternoon or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Jeff Lindsay, author of the best-selling Dexter novels, which have been adapted into a hit television series. Jeff's latest novel, Just Watch Me, introduces a new hero, Riley Wolf. Jeff, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you, Charlie. Glad to be here. Um, you created Dexter, who has been called one of the most popular anti-heroes of recent times, and now... In the first book of a new series, you've given us another anti-hero who we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But to begin with, can you define for our listeners and for me, for that matter, exactly what makes an anti-hero? The short definition would be uh, somebody who does good things for bad reasons. Hmm. Um, You can go a little longer on either end of that. But basically, it's somebody who's an outsider who has their own set of rules that are usually consistent but clash with general, um, the generally accepted social rules that the rest of us follow. And um, I don't know, a great example would be in the first Star Wars movie, Luke is the hero and Han Solo is the anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's there's always whether it's male or female or anything else. It's there's a little bit of bad boy there in an anti-hero. They have their own reasons for doing things, and the things they do aren't always good. But the end they're working towards is generally something we can get behind. Right. Well, and why are you particularly drawn to to characters who are anti-heroes? Is there some aspect of their creation that you especially enjoy? You know, a couple of people have asked me that, and I hadn't really thought about it before then. Um, (laughs) I guess it's kind of a reflex. I don't know. Uh, I said that anti-heroes are are outsiders, and I've kind of always felt like an outsider myself. I don't know if that's a standard teenage thing. Um, I'm not a teenager anymore. I still feel it. Uh, Other than that, I don't know. There's a little darkness in all of us. And um, this is just me exploring mine, I guess. Hmm. So, so your Dexter books were a hit on the on the page, and then they became a hit as a television series. Um, were, were you involved in the series at all? And, and even if you weren't, I'm curious, how do you see the demands of the screen and the page differing from each other? Uh, I was involved a bit in the pilot for Dexter. Uh, I'd see the rough cuts and comment on them, and I visited the set a couple of times and talked to them. Uh, I talked to the showrunner, and um, I got friendly with a couple of the actors. And after the pilot, um, I stayed in touch, but I, I didn't really have any input anymore. Um, the difference is, you know, it's like the difference between sculpture and painting. The, there are different medium has a different set of requirements. requirements. Um, and I understand that. I've worked in TV and film as well, and I know that they're different. And um, the changes they made in the TV series from the books are all pretty much explained by the fact that it's TV and not a book. And I understand that. And I also think I got really lucky because uh, they mostly did an, a terrific job 
on uh, giving Dexter a, a silver tube life. Mm-hmm. So introduce us, uh, if you will, to your new hero, Riley Wolf. If you were, if we were at a cocktail party introducing him to someone, what, what would you tell us about him? Um, well, short introductions are good at cocktail parties. <laughs> I, I don't have a cocktail, unfortunately. I may go a little longer than that. Um, Riley Wolf is a master thief, uh, but he's not really in it for the money. He's in it for the challenge. He, um, um, he grew up as what we call trailer trash and bullied by the rich kids. And that and a couple of traumas along the way have turned him into someone who is compelled to do impossible things in order to prove that he can, and also to do them as much as possible to the 1%, to rub their noses in it. He's got a real uh, thing about, you know, the people who are inherited wealth and living, uh, feeling sort of like they the world owes them everything, even though they're starting with everything. And he doesn't like those people, and he, he preys on them when he can, and he has to do impossible things in order to uh, fulfill whatever it is, the demon that's driving him. So I would never get away with something like that at a cocktail party, but that's the introduction. <laughs> you begin the novel not with that introduction to your hero, but with an audacious and what was for me as a reader uh, an unexpected crime. We're, we're, uh, we're in a scene where we it's not immediately apparent that there's something that can be easily stolen. Uh, right. Why did you choose to start that way? Well, when I'm setting up the main heist crime of the book as something impossible, um, you need to show it. You need to compare it a little. And um, I wanted to give them to give uh, the readers something to start with that looks impossible in order to make the next thing look even more impossible, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, he pulls it off right at the opening of the book, and it was too easy. And he realizes uh, everything's been easy lately, and that's depressing because, like I said, he's in it for the challenge. So he has to find something harder, um, or there's just no point in doing it. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that struck me about the first scene, because it it, uh, recalled... The way I opened my first novel is that you and I both chose to completely ignore Elmore Leonard's um, advice about not having the weather at the very beginning. And in fact, the weather is a pretty, to me, felt like a big part of that first scene. How how did you use that? um, Talk about how you use the sort of cold of Chicago to kind of set the mood for the whole novel. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Ernest Hemingway said weather's important. There you go. <laughs> and so I, I like to stick it in, and I, I revere Elmore Leonard, too. But I do think the weather's important. And in this case, as you say, it sets the tone because it's a day when you're outside. Nobody wants to be there. Um, the, the people who are watching as Riley pulls this off are already a little bit stunned. It's winter in Chicago, and they're right on the lakefront. And if you've ever been there, um, if you think you get cold, uh, you know, up in the in the mountains in North Carolina, uh, darling, you ain't seen it yet. It's, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and the other thing was, I have a buddy who was in the Navy, who told me about an epic drinking night in Chicago that ended. 
with him waking up the next morning on the beach, absolutely naked, and within a few minutes of dying from hypothermia, which was his buddy's idea of a a really good joke. So (laughs) that was in my mind, and I thought it would be a great way to start out. So when, when we really, as readers, when we do meet Riley, when he reveals himself to us, he speaks directly to us in the first person. Um, yes. Do you think that makes it easier for the reader to connect with a hero who's also a criminal that he sort of immediately begins to confess to us? Yes. I think, you know, the first person perspective is, is always, um, you can call it a cheat if you want. It's a way to, to help readers understand the, the character a little better. And understanding is almost always uh, one of the doors into empathy. So uh, that's, uh, that's, that's something that I've, I've practiced in order to get readers to understand the characters and feel for them a little bit. And in some ways, I thought Riley might be a more difficult sell than Dexter because of the financial motivation. Uh, Dexter could always say, I can't help it. Riley can help it. He just, he's obsessed. He doesn't want to help it. So Riley's a master thief, as you said, uh, and he, he pulls off these seemingly impossible heists. Were there, were there particular thieves or heists, either fictional or real, that inspired you or that you looked on as you were starting to, to create him? No, I, uh, I I don't do that kind of research. Um, creating Dexter, I didn't know there was such a thing as the serial killer genre. It surprised me. And creating Riley, uh, I don't know, it seems like every interviewer has a, a, another master thief in mind and wonders if I read it or saw it or whatever. And the best I can come up with is when I was a kid, I did see Top Copy. But what I really remember about that is Peter Ustinov. Um, so I sort of get the idea and then do research around it um, in the factual stuff, not in the fictional treatments on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about um, if, when I hear the term master thief, I think about people like uh, in cinematically like Thomas Crown or Danny Ocean, who are sort of the gentleman thief in a way. You mm-hmm. see them always wearing a tuxedo and holding a martini. Um, but that's not that's not Riley, is it? Well, no, um, it could be if it was necessary. He's, he's really good at disguises and not just, you know, the physical aspects of it. He gets, he's, gets all method actor on it too. He becomes the person that he's disguising himself as, but, uh, he's not a gentleman thief. Uh, he's, uh, I think I said this, he's good old fashioned Southern trailer trash when he starts. And, um, he, he, works his way into any character like a method actor and becomes that person while he's playing the part. Mm -hmm. So he can be a gentleman or, you know, a ditch digger or whatever else he has to be. But for him, it's all part of the job. You said he, he, you know, started out as Southern trailer trash. How much of his personality and his backstory did you work out before you started to draft the novel? Um, most of it. Uh, I worked with a psychologist on this. I had, you know, I had an end result in mind, but um, I wanted to make it believable and I wanted to create these traumas in his path, in his past, that could realistically propel him to being the person hmm. that he is in the book, Just Watch Me. So, you, you know, I come up with something like, how can he 
be that obsessively angry at the 1%. And working on that with a psychologist, the, the people who bully him are members of the 1%. And then there's a couple of traumatic episodes that amplify that. And so it's really, I mean, I've always been about character more than anything else. I love doing the characters and making them come alive. Um, maybe to an excess, even the, the minor characters in my books uh, are people for me that I spend a little time on and, and make real, at least in, in my imagination. Mm -hmm. I think that's fascinating that you start out with you know where you want him to be and then figure out what psychological history would lead him there rather than you know, writing a childhood and then figuring out where it goes. Um, it's, it's probably a lot safer the way you're doing it. Um, do, does knowing that a character may appear in multiple novels, does that um, affect the way you approach this whole idea of their backstory uh, differently than if it was just going to be a one-off? Uh, well, for starters, I can't kill them when they're young, and that's always <laughs> well, a yeah. uh, uh, You know, it's... Uh, I, I, to some extent, the, I think any major traumatic events in anybody's past is going to shape them later on. Um, and, uh, you know, I work with that. But as you said, it, it's, um, it, it may seem backwards, but it is easier to figure out what makes somebody behave a certain way than it is to have them behave that way uh, without that. So um, I'm sure that doesn't answer your question, but I got lost, so I'm really sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Riley has something, I would almost call this a mantra that he has. Um, yep. He says, there is always a way. Can you talk always. about the way that his sense of identity is is intertwined with that belief that there is always a way? Um. It, it comes from his thing where he has to prove to people that he can do it. You know, he's been told you can't, you're nothing. Um, go back to your double wide rag boy. And he has to prove, oh, yes, I can. I can do it. And he kind of starts with impossible things when he's a kid and has this precipitating event that makes him realize that he really is better and that he really can do it. And um, he realizes there is always a way. It's just a matter of how you think about it. That becomes the key to his whole career. Because stealing the crown jewels of Iran uh, is impossible if you think of it as stealing the crown jewels of Iran. You have to think not just outside the box, but without boxes. And... In a certain sense, Riley has trained himself to think in a completely different way. Um, it's like, instead of thinking, how do I break into this place to get what's inside? You think about, how can I remove the outsides so that I'm inside? Mm -hmm. Or how can I bring the stuff inside out to me? Just a different way of thinking. And um, that's where it comes from. There may not be a way, if you think conventionally, but if you think in the Riley frame of mind, there is always a way. So you mentioned he, in this novel, Just Watch Me, he sets his sights on the crown jewels of Iran. He's trying to give himself right. the, the impossible challenge. How did you settle on this particular target? I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, Iran, of course, has been in the news for a while. 
And I do have that moment of thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we could all get along? Um, but I guess stealing your crown jewels isn't the best way to get along with you. <laughs> so I guess it just, you know, the idea occurred to me. And when I was looking for other treasures, things that might be fun to steal, and I saw the crown jewels of Iran, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's dazzling. It's probably the greatest collection ever anywhere of jewelry and jeweled objects and treasure and just stuff that you cannot believe you're looking at. So I thought that would be fun to have a whack at it. And did you actually travel to Iran and see these in, in person? Um, no, for several reasons, that was not really practical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I, I had to mostly Google it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Riley describes, Riley does go to Iran, and he describes yes. the, the awe that he feels when he first sees this amazing collection. He says, I was knocked stupid. I mean, jaw on the floor, forget to breathe. Um, what, what do you think of to get into that moment? What, what knocks you stupid? What allows you to be, to have the same awe that Riley has in that moment? Well, Riley, uh, one of his redeeming qualities, I think, is he really does love great art. Um, which is something that that I have in common with him. And there are, I remember the first time I saw uh, Picasso's painting Guernica in person. That was that moment for me. I just stood there with my jaw on the floor, staring at it for about 40 minutes. And um, Riley's the same way. And I think for him, there's also an added dimension when he's looking at something that gorgeous. He's also got a small piece of him saying, and it's worth, you know, $15 billion. So um, the combination, I think, is appealing. But it's important that he does love the beauty of these things, too. Yeah, it's, it's as you said, it's an interesting combination where you and I would stand in front of a great work of art and, and be gobsmacked and admire it as a work of art, whereas he sees it as a potential acquisition in addition to its, its artistic merit. Yeah. It's kind of, um, that is so incredibly beautiful, and so I have to have it, right. which is the step that you and I wouldn't take. Right. You chose to put the crown jewels into a fictional New York museum. Um, do you feel like that gives you sort of more leeway in terms of setting everything up than if, if Riley tried to rob, say, the Metropolitan Museum of Art or something that was an existing museum? Yes, absolutely. And I also have to say, with no disrespect intended, uh, it would probably be easier to rob the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum. But this thing, I had a lot of fun with this. I made the museum uh, built by a robber baron um, and designed by a relatively unknown protege of Sanford White's. Um, and that was fun for me, just for, you know, peculiar aesthetic reasons. Yeah. And um, it's it's built to, to be a fortress and not just a, a place to display this robber baron's treasures, which is an added element of security once the jewels get inside. And because it's a private museum, it doesn't have to worry about budget or government regulations or anything like that. They can just take it to the max and use stuff that's, so futuristic, it's never been tried before, and that's what they do. Uh, I, I love that um, you mentioned Stanford White there. I, that I have a novel coming out later this year in which he's a, 
um, is one of the characters. And so I was like, great. Other oh. people know about Stanford White. Um, but but I, I think of like I think of the Frick. I think of other um, some existing museums in New York when when I was mm-hmm. reading about your fictional one. Um, yep. But I also couldn't help thinking as I was reading this book of, for instance, this big heist that just happened in Germany at the Green Vault. Um, yeah, those do, swine. You know, they're trying oh, to steal my thunder. Well, <laughs> and, and I guess I guess my question is: Do you know what sort of what is the relationship between um, between a novel and current events in a, in a situation like that? Do, do you think events like that make your story more believable to the reader that they can look and go, "Oh yeah, that something like that actually happened." Yeah, I guess so, and I, I guess it's it's also a, a reminder that. Um, you know, reality always uh, sort of gets in the way of fiction. Uh, you know, there was a lot more possibility that we'd have uh, sort of a detente with Iran when I started writing this than there is now. But the thing in Berlin a few weeks ago is just its something that my Riley research turned up to me, that it's a lot easier than you might think to do this stuff. People... Drop tons. Of, I think Riley even comments on this in the book. People drop all this money on security without thinking about what they're spending it on, without actually really increasing the actual security. So you spend ten thousand dollars on an alarm, and you know it's an alarm that's been in use for ten years, and every crook worth his salt knows how to get around it. But because you spent ten thousand dollars on it, you know it's good. I'm done. I'm out of here. And that's, you know, people like Riley live for that. Um, There's another case in Paris a few years ago where this guy found that a museum had spent a lot of money on, you know, putting alarms on the windows so that if you broke the window, um, the alarms would all go off so there's no way in. Well, yeah, there is. You undo all the set screws and just take the the window out of the frame. And no alarms go off. So this is, again, kind of Riley thinking without a box. And it's the way a really good crook will look at it. You know, um, you have protected the wrong thing and you think you're safe because you spent money on it. I remember reading about that case in Paris you were talking about and thinking that that the article, I think it was in The New Yorker, it, it read like a novel. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely you yes, know, the, the same sort of gripping narrative as, as, as what yours are. Um, why do readers love a criminal who gets away with it, as as Riley has done so far? I mean, you have law enforcement in your book. Normally, in the real world, we would you know cheer for law enforcement against the criminals. Um, how do you make sure that we are we are rooting for Riley and not for the the people who are trying to bring him down? Well, in the first place, there really is a, a bad boy inside of all of us, whatever our gender identification. Uh, And, you know, we're not born, laws are not genetic, they're imposed on us from outside, and there's always a little bit of resentment about that. So, uh, I think we all want to see someone get away with it once in a while, as long as we can sort of generally approve of them or the way they do it. Um, And, you know, Riley fulfills that. I, um, I did a lot of Maybe you could call them tricks or cheats, but just ways to make people understand him and like him a little. You know, writing in the first person, giving him this backstory, things like that, that help us understand why he does that. Instead of just presenting him as a cold criminal who steals things and hurts people and even kills them when they're in the way. 
you know why he does it and what it means and what the stakes are for him. And, you know, that that's a big help in liberating the bad boy inside us, I think. Are there are there limits to what an antihero can do and still have the reader on his side? You you mentioned, for instance, that Raleigh commits murder, and he does in the very first scene of the novel. But mm-hmm. the guy he murders is this sort of reviled pharmaceutical executive. Um, yeah, I've had no complaints about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I guess I'm saying, at what point? What what do you see narratively as sort of going too far? Where where would you draw the line about? Okay, I can do this, oh. but I can't do that. I would think um, that a serial killer who kills people because he likes it is way too far, and I could never get away with that. Um, and now one of the other things I think that sort of gets Riley on on the side of certain certainly some readers is, as you said, he targets the 1%. Um, yep. do, you, do you feel like you're there, you're tapping into a, a societal resentment of extreme wealth? Yeah, again, it was something that, um, you know, like the the thief, the theft in Berlin, it's something that I, you know, I found a wave to ride and didn't realize that it was a wave that everybody else was coming in on. Um, I think that with a lot of artists and writers and like that, there's whatever you want. I mean, Carl Jung had the uh, universal unconscious um, or, you know, the oversoul or the animus mundi. There's a lot of names people have thought of this. I think there's a collective unconscious that people tap into and certain types of jobs get you uh, clicking in on it earlier than the general population. So I had started writing this with his anger at the 1%. And realized that a lot of people were feeling the same thing all of a sudden. I'm not saying I, I caused it. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's something. There are things that everybody feels at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that made sense. I've, I've started to feel like I'm getting a little bit out there. <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you're writing about a heist, and this is the part that I think must be so much fun. You talked about um, the fact that you get to design this particular museum that has uh, security measures that you wouldn't find in any other museum in New York or maybe even in the world. You get to design the crime and also the security that the criminal has to overcome. Um, right. Do you, do you do those things sort of simultaneously? Do you first design the security system and then figure out how to beat it? How, what, how does that work in just in terms of your process? Well, in this case, at least, I wanted to make it as hard as possible. So, you know, you start with the basics, what kind of building is it, and you go on from there, and, um, you know, I looked at a bunch of buildings and went, what are all the possible points in and out, and now what are some of the impossible ones, and if it was me, how would I guard them all, and I did a little more research and went, okay, it's not me, how would you guard them all with a few experts, And eventually you come up with this sort of uh, compound picture of something impossible, which is what I was shooting for here. Early on, Riley gets what you might describe as master thief's block. He he is (laughs) at a point where he cannot see any way forward, even though he believes there's always a way he can't see the way. Um, Right. Did you does that happen with you when you're when you're writing? Do you always know? How the how the crime is going to be committed, or do you get to a point where you go, "Wow, I think I've designed a museum that's that even my master thief can't break into." Um, I get stuck, and it, it you know sometimes it is 
the crime itself or, the, you know, the machinery of it. But it's other things that get you stuck, too. You paint yourself into a corner. I'm sure it's happened to you. And um, there is always a way out, you know. Uh, there's a, a great movie, Shakespeare in Love. I really enjoy it. And the character of the, uh, the theater owner um, who keeps saying it'll be fine by opening night. Right. And they go, how can it possibly be fine? What are you talking about? And he goes, I don't know. But somehow, and that's kind of a motto with me at this point, somehow it always happens. I, I think a lot of writers probably look to that scene. Uh, it just that, that, you know, you have to have that, uh, that belief that you'll figure it out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's become a motto, truly, um, that, you know, somehow. And if you think about it as a writer, somehow you always do find a way um, Either that or you wouldn't be a writer anymore. I find that in editing a lot. An editor will say, well, these two scenes contradict each other, or this character can't know this piece of information now because of what happened 100 pages ago. And my first reaction is, oh, no, you know, what, what can I do? And then my second reaction is, well, it's just a problem. Problems can be solved. I just have exactly. to find the solution. And then it'll it, – and often the solution is three or four sentences, you know. Yep. And I find myself a little envious. I don't. I don't think I've ever had that kind of editor, <laughs> that kind of hands-on thing. So uh, my somehow usually involves asking my wife for help. Yeah, yeah. It's good. I think it is good to have readers who can go and look for those those logical inconsistencies because sometimes you're so inside the story that you don't realize if you've if you've contradicted yourself or you have your yes. your character doing something contradictory. Um, Agreed. I also love the way that you sometimes play around with words and language um, in your text. For instance, one time there's a point at which Raleigh says that he doesn't have any delusions, illusions, or confusions about what life really is. And I just I, I love the sound of those kind of things. How does <laughs> how does the sound of language play into your writing process? Do you read work aloud as you're working on it? Um, I, I guess I hear it aloud a lot of the time. Just you know the theater background. Um, but no, the, the stuff just comes to me. I mean, I've always enjoyed playing with words. And I guess, you know, growing up memorizing A.A. A. Milne helps a lot. Oh, yeah. And um, reading a lot of Ogden Nash and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, it's just something I've always liked to do. And it, it comes naturally now. I can't resist, as an old theater bum myself, asking about, you, you said you have a theater background? Yes. Can you tell us a little I, uh, bit about that? I was about halfway through my English major at Middlebury College when I got the bug and I started doing plays. And um, I went on to uh, graduate school and took a double degree in directing and playwriting. And we, with a couple of friends, I started a theater company. And we went out to L.A. and, and did a couple of seasons and then went belly up like all theater companies <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. But, you know, I still love the theater, and I'm, I'm still writing plays when I can. I just had one done about a year and a half ago, and um, I'm working on, I have, <laughs> you want to talk about writer's block, I have four plays sitting on my hard drive right now, where I've gotten almost to the end and gone, I can't finish it, something's <laughs> wrong, I don't know what to do, help me. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, st I still think that way sometimes. Yeah. One of the things I found is after many years of, of primarily writing plays, uh, 
is that now as a novelist, I find when I get to a scene that's that's dialogue, it it just it flies because that's I've I've exercised those dialogue muscles so much as a playwright. Do you have the same kind of experience? I do. Um, you know, I hear it, and I don't have problem. I'm sure you you're the same way. I don't have problem shifting between characters because I can hear their different voices as I'm going, like you're watching actors. Yeah. So uh, it, it is a big help with that. Tell us about what Riley calls the darkness. Where does that come from? When I thought that Riley would have to be able to kill people if they were in the way, um, I didn't want him to be a killer. You know, I didn't want him to be a sociopath, cold killer like like Dexter was, but he had to be able to, to do it. Now, I know both from research and from personal experience that um, most people luckily can't kill. Uh, and when I say personal experience, I don't mean I've done it. <laughs> My father was uh, on Iwo Jima, mm. and he, he was one of the first guys ashore. By which I mean not that, you know, when the when the invasion started, the ramp went down. He went, let's go, everybody. He went ashore in a little rubber boat the night before with a couple of uh, colleagues. And he was there for almost the entire time. And he he knows darn well that he killed people. There was no question about it. And for the rest of his life, almost every night he'd wake up screaming, you know, re- reliving it. That's the way most people react to killing. So Riley needed a way out and a way forward. And what he's got now is what he calls the darkness. That's just something that's, it acts as a cushion. It lets him do the deed as if he's he's watching someone else do it. So he knows full well consciously that he did it. But subconsciously, he doesn't get the PTSD from it because he watched it. It was something else outside him. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. where that comes from. What do you think is next for Riley? Well, um, it's not a matter of guesswork. I, I, I'm about halfway through the next book. Okay. And um, it's if the crown jewels are impossible, we need a new word for the next one. Because <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous. I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but there's always a way. But that's the fun, isn't it? Yes, fun. Retrospective fun, I right. think. But right. <laughs> We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight ding, into... Ding, 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 <laughs> that's right. Ding, ding. You've got the theme song and everything. <laughs> so if you're ready, we'll begin. Uh, Shoot. What word do you love to work into your writing? Um, votive figure. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, the use of uh, impact as a verb. Where's your favorite place to write? My house. Where could you never write? Public place. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um, in character, it depends on the character. Uh, when I'm being myself, I have to pay attention to all of them. What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, it was probably See Spot Run. What are you reading now? Um, War and Peace and some fantasy by Miles Cameron. What book would you like to have written? 
Oh, boy. Um, let's see. Uh, All's Quiet on the Western Front. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Uh, <clears throat> historical fiction. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, I have this enormous check that I would like to give you, and I guarantee it's good. <laughs> This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Jeff Lindsay, whose new novel, Just Watch Me, is available wherever books are sold. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. It's been a real pleasure. Inside the Writer's Studio generally posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. But I'll be taking a little vacation on New Year's Day to enjoy the holidays and to prepare for my daughter's wedding. On January 15th, I'll be talking to debut novelist and an old friend, Michael Huey, about his spy thriller, Spitfire. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>